Hey, Mike Ulmer here. The great Mark Pettipaw lent me this space to remind you that now is a great time to write your nonfiction book. I've interviewed 10,000 people. I've written 19 books, and I want to help you write yours. Here's how we do it. First, we interview you. Then we give you a detailed step-by-step blueprint for your book based on that interview. We write your thousand-word introduction, throw in some cover ideas, and suggest a title. And here's the best part. We assign a writer to help you answer all your questions for a calendar year. You're going to be so sick of us. Click the link, I want to write my book, in Mark's show notes for a free consultation. At the very least, we'll help you find your story and send you on your way free of charge. Now it's on to lessons in leadership from the stockroom to the boardroom with my friend, Mark Pettipa. All right. Okay, so welcome to another episode of the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I feel like I've got an MLSE theme to some of these because I, I was blessed to work around some great leaders while I worked there and observe them. So we, we do have another person from my past today that I had the pleasure to work with at the Air Canada Centre and at Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment. So today... Welcome, Christy Fletcher. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It is great to be on your podcast. I can't wait to share, to have you share um, your journey to date with leadership because it's an interesting one. And I think people listening to this podcast will get a lot out of it. So no pressure, of course. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of review about what I know about you and where we've worked together. And I'm going to miss a bunch of stuff. So if you could fill in what happened before that's pertinent and what happened after, that would be phenomenal. But to introduce everyone to our relationship and how I know you, um, I was lucky enough to work with Christy at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. Uh, we served together on what was called at the time ACCET, the Air Canada Centre Executive Team uh, under Bob Hunter. And Christy was in charge of the suites across all of the facilities as the senior leader, as we opened up BMO and RICO. And, but your big business was the Air Canada Centre, obviously. Um, whereas I was more on the operational side with stadium operations and, and making sure uh, the guests were taken care of in the seats and in the hallways and what that looked like. And uh, before that, Christy, you were a longtime member at MLSC before I ever joined, so I'd love for you to share your days from Maple Leaf Gardens all the way through to Air Canada Centre, because I think you, you went through that transition. But since then, you've left and got into the music world uh, with Kara Group. If I'm not mistaken, it's Kara's. Kara. Kara's, yeah. You know yeah. We did a little work together on strategic planning when you're with Music Counts and the team at the Junos. Um, and since you've progressed and grown there as well to the president of Music Council, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. You've okay, got what, what did I miss before? Tell us a little bit about the background before you hit that senior role at the Air Canada Center. Yeah, I, um, I started uh, with the Toronto Maple Leafs pretty much right out of school. Um, I mean, it's I'm fully transparent. It was absolutely nepotism that got me in the door. Uh, (laughs) Should we we speak to that? Like Fletcher? Yeah. That person that got you in the door. So my, my father at the time was the general manager of the Maple Leafs um, cliff and he had taken on, we had moved from Calgary to Toronto. Um, I moved like a year later. I I finished university. I think I went traveling for a year and then uh, landed in Toronto. And truthfully, 
I took what was going to be just a a part-time job, not a part-time, but a short-term job until I figured out what I wanted to do with my life. That was was really um, where my head was at. I didn't think that I wanted to stay in Toronto. I figured I would maybe head back out west at a certain point. Um, But I have to say, I started with the Maple Leafs at a really good time. The NHL had just decided that community relations was a big priority for them. Um, Really, it didn't exist prior to to that time. Um, It just wasn't a big emphasis. I'm sure there were things that were done more on an ad hoc basis, but there wasn't a strategy around it. Um, So I was lucky to be with the organization when that's what the NHL wanted to do. And that very much was something of great interest to me to be able to work with the players, have a brand like the Toronto Maple Leafs and, and do some great work. And um, so that, that started the journey. Um, I helped with many fundraising initiatives but also, you know, so different than what the sports um, culture is now. We were a tiny team. There was probably 10 of us that did everything, literally what 150 people would do now, but very different times. You know, there wasn't such a, a digital and a social um emphasis and there really wasn't at all. Um, But, you know, so we had a handful of people that did marketing, communications, um, events, um, team relations, um, team travel, like you name it. And it was a small group of people that did it. But the great thing for me is that allowed me to gain experience in communications. I mean, when we were doing event, we wrote our own press releases. We were the ones to reach out to the media to to pitch whatever it is we were doing. Um, I worked really closely with team members. You know, they were pretty engaged in what we were doing at that time. You know, there wasn't the separation between player and and staff that there probably is now. So it was it was a great opportunity. Um, a couple of fun facts. I, I helped uh, develop Carlton the Bear. That you know, that's something I don't know if you knew that, but I did um, not. Are we allowed to talk about who Carlton the Bear actually was? Like, uh, yeah, I, or is that I don't know? No, I I think that's totally appropriate. And was, was, was Mike Ferriman the first? He and I, was, and it. there's a, a fun little story behind that. So, um, so it was actually Daryl Sittler, uh, who at the time was uh, sort of a, a leaf liaison ambassador. And he, he was in the office and he's like, we need to have a mascot. And at the time, the owner was not big on having a leaf mascot. They just thought it was too kitschy. It was Mr. Stavro and it just wasn't, you know, he's a traditionalist and, and um, he just didn't feel having a mascot was the, was the right look for the Toronto Maple Leafs. So, um, but Daryl was really big on having a mascot. So after a lot of back and forth, we determined we would go down the pathway of a mascot, but just use the mascot during events outside of games. So if we were doing a community event or if there was something, you know, if we were doing a hospital visit, um, we would engage the mascot. So, um, uh, Bob Stelic, my boss at the time, was like, okay, Christy, you go figure out how we're going to do this mascot. So I, I engaged um, an external group who helped design. And there were a few of us who were who were uh, working on, you know, the look and feel of what would become Carlton the Bear. And um, it was actually Pat Park at the time. He was in communications. He named the bear 
um, Carlton. And then I actually, we were trying to figure out if he needed a number and I'm like, well, it should be 60 if we're naming the bear Carlton. So, you know, we came up with, with this mascot. Um, but then it was actually finding who was going to wear the mascot. And we had an open house coming up and we really wanted to launch the mascot at the open house. So, um, it just so happened the week before the open house, we were conducting something called breakout. It was a big NHL initiative. It was a big outdoor inline hockey tournament. And we had a bunch of volunteers and, um, one of our volunteers happened to be this gentleman by the name of Mike Ferryman. And a good friend of mine at the time introduced me to Mike and said, well, you know, Mike, you know how I know Mike. He was the mascot at Western. He wore the Western Mustang. Oh, I didn't know that. Like, okay. Uh-huh. Yes, he was one. I guess there were a few, but he was one of the, the Mustang mascots. So I'm like, are you kidding me? I need a mascot next weekend. So I said to Mike, I'm like, any chance you can throw on our, our new mascot uniform next weekend for this event? Well, I guess the the one event turned into a full-time job and then ended up being Carlton the Bear for many years. Um, I I think there there have been a couple since him, but um, yeah, he was Carlton the Bear for at least 15 years, I think. And he grew his career within MLSE in game ops, not just, you know, being Carlton. Absolutely. He ended up being, was it director of game ops or manager of game yeah. ops? Director? Yeah. Yeah, he he did, and uh, and he's still there. So yeah. he's he's still working with the organization. Great. Guy. So so funnily enough, that you know that's that's my detour in the Carlton the Bear story and the mascot story. But um, so yeah, when you know I started with a very small organization, I was able to gain um, knowledge across many different um, businesses uh, within the Toronto Maple Leafs, so that when the Leafs and Raptors merged which happened, I guess, around 2000. Um, And there was a lot of uncertainty. You know, none of us really knew what that was going to look like. Um, It ended up that, you know, it was really the Raptors management who, who were taking over, you know, the Leaf team. So there's always a bit of nervousness there, um, but it ended up being Richard Petty. And I know you've had Richard on your podcast and and he was just a phenomenal leader. So it, it worked out for all the employees um, working under someone who uh, with such great leadership and, and really just opened up career opportunities for me too. I was able to work with the Leafs and the Raptors on their community teams. Um, I loved my time doing that. And it gave me a taste for really, you know, I've kind of come full circle now and getting more into the um, uh, the work that I'm doing now, which is um, sort of whether you want to call it social profit or uh, not for profit. But yeah, I'm, I'm back in this world. So um, and then I guess by the time I met you, I had um, I had done a few different stints uh, along the way and ended up more in the executive suites and then premium seating um, area of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. So I think by the time I left, I probably had, you know, 30 full-time employees and many more part-time employees and, um, and big revenue from a business responsibility perspective. I mean, it yeah. was big, I think, I think I remember now I'm getting old, Chrissy, because geez, I've been gone from MLSC for eight, probably at least 14, 15 years. I think I left mm-hmm. BMO Field in 2008. Oh my God, I'm getting old. Anyways, where I was going with that is I remember conversation in ACCET, ASSET, I think we used to call it. 
And right. The challenge you were having with suites at the time, don't quote me on the numbers, but I think they were getting up to $546,000 a year, which included Leafs and Raptors and the first show of each concert, not all the shows. That's right. I paid attention to you. I paid yes, attention. my gosh, you remember better than I do. When, when you got to that stage where business was shifting, like corporate dollars were being under a microscope of what they were spending on entertainment, you saw that. And then I think at the time you came up with the concept of quarter suites. So yes. you could still get the 546, but you were getting it from four different businesses. Um, but the reason I shared that was that was one suite. And you had multiple suites on multiple levels. I mean, the revenue you were accountable to in the Canada Center and then BMO Field would have been about what do you think back in the day? Probably between both at that time, 70 million. Um, and then by the time I left with the premium seating business and the suites, it was over 200 million. Um, so it, yeah, it's significant dollars and you're right. I think the period you're talking about was when we had, uh, a real market correction. There was that, you know, financial, um, crash, so to speak. And a lot of businesses were scrutinizing, um, how they were spending their dollars. And there were also some government regulations that came in that weren't allowing the same types of write-offs. And, you know, when you lose that component of, of, um, when you're selling, when when you lose um, the benefit of being able to write it off, it's you know it had a pretty significant impact. And I I try to keep in touch with that business a little bit. Just you know I read up on different things, and there's still a lot of the same challenges. I mean the dollars are significant, and I see the pandemic all uh, almost being similar to what would have happened with that market crash. Now people are coming back after the pandemic. They haven't been spending money on the same types of you know corporate entertaining. And they'll start to question, do I need to entertain it in this way anymore? Look at all the money that I've saved. What was the value we were getting on that? You know, showing ROI on that type of business can be challenging. I mean, I believe it's there ultimately, obviously. I I had to believe it was there to sell it. But, um, you know, it, it there. I suspect there will be a lot more scrutiny coming up. I think, you know, and I think that's a great way to transition from the MLSE profile into your current one. But, but, you know, what I heard from you through all of that is kind of the reason I wanted you on the podcast, because one, absolutely, you took advantage of an opportunity that you acknowledge through dad to get through the door. But like, then that was it. Like, you've built this successful career that I think people know your brother and your dad, and they've heard that name live in sports. And and by the way, I'm a Habs fan, as you know very well. And I think no. your father beat us on home ice in 86, if I'm not mistaken. Was he the GM? Uh, 89. Oh, sorry. We, we beat Calgary in 86. We lost in 89. Your dad was yeah. the GM at that point? Yes, and I was there. I was in that building when that happened. Podcast over. Next <laughs> next week's guest is, no, I'm just teasing. But where I'm going with that is, like, you know, you've built this extremely successful career and learned on your own in a completely different side of the business as your sibling and your father. Um, and you've, what I admire about you, Christy, which people don't understand about the sweets business is you had so many prongs in that business. Like, so, you know, you had to manage the F&B relationship with John Corkle and the team at uh, Pinnacle at the time. I don't know if that's changed. But no, it has not changed. Sweet service, the team, the experience of all your clients going through it, sales and generating that revenue and, and a significant portion of that business. 
And those are a lot of, um, you know, things to juggle. And you, 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 for me, I'm an emotions on your sleeve type of guy. And if I'm having a bad day, you can tell. And if I'm having a great day, you can tell. You are so calm with all that responsibility. And I think that showed up in your team. It was such a big responsibility, but your leadership style was one to keep people calm with all of those financial and experience responsibilities. So I love that you shared all that story. And, and that all started with community relations with 10 people in an office at, at MLG. And if I had to guess, Stevie Nickel was probably around back then. At he MLG. An office. Yes, I believe. Part-time yeah. office. He was there. Yeah, there's, there's so many names that, and they were the people that I really learned a lot from because I joined the organization later on when you guys were already up and running at the Air Canada Center. I came in at 2004, I think, in consumer okay. products. Yeah. But I felt that knowledge being transferred to the new people in a way of like, here's the experience we're bringing forward. So I thought that was really cool. I thought your careers progressed really well. Um, and now here you are in music. So mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about music counts and your role there. Yeah, no, I would love to. And I, I feel so fortunate to have been able to make that transition. And just sort of the last thing I'll say on, you know, how I got my start in my role, it has it is never lost on me that, you know, that is very much a, a privilege to be able to walk into an organization like the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, and and not have to interview for it. You know, that's absolutely a privilege. And I'll be honest, it's something that sometimes sat with me with a bit of discomfort because I recognized also that there would be some judgment, <clears throat> some judgment around that. And um, and that's something I had to work against for a long, long time. You know, my my dad left the organization in, I want to say 97. I believe around 97. He was, um, he was around as a consultant, I think, to John Ferguson at the time, right? Not John Ferguson. That was after. So he came back in many years later, um, sort of post-Brian Burke era. Got it. Um, and is actually still consulting with the organization. But, oh, yeah. but you know, he left full-time in 97, uh, moved to the U.S. So, you know, I had a long stretch in there where I you know, my dad was not a part of the organization, but I still always felt I was fighting against that a little bit. And maybe that was my own insecurity or, or it was something that maybe came from others too. It's hard to know. Um, having said that and moving into, you know, where I am now, I do have to say that, um, and we can certainly talk about how I got there and all the reasons behind it, because there, there are a lot of reasons I left. Um, but not fighting against that, you know, you're your father's daughter and did you really earn this position is probably one of the most rewarding things in my Good new career. So um, can I, can I add something, not that you need the validation, but I think it's important that I share it. Um, I can be objective. No, like I didn't know you were Cliff's daughter until probably four years into the job. You, you earned your own path there. Yes. Nice of you to acknowledge that it got you through the door, but you earned everything along the way, Christy. And I, I never heard the dialogue ever in the, gosh, five, six years I was there was that's a hockey family person or like it just wasn't talked about. You earned your stripes. Um, and I think that's really valuable because I can only imagine like you, you shared and then we can move on from this. But I, I love that you're so open and transparent about it. That would carry a little weight. Not only, hey, are people wondering if I got this opportunity on my merit? But like the pressure of living up to that name, I can only imagine that was part of it too. 
And I think he blew it out of the water. I think he, Christy Fletcher is Christy Fletcher and has earned every freaking thing she's got. So let's let's keep moving on to the to the next part. Let's talk about music counts. Yeah. So I it was about seven years ago now, which is just so hard for me to believe. Um, I was I was looking for a shift, and I was you know, I knew I had been so fortunate to, to be a part of MLSC, but I wasn't happy. And I, I, I don't use that word lightly because it's not always just about being happy at work. You know, you know, the reality is we're not always going to be happy. Um, But I was at a crossroads and, you know, on, on paper, I had had a degree of success uh, in sports and particularly as a woman in sports and, um, and I knew that, but, but I was at a crossroad and I, I wanted a change. And, um, you know, when I look back now and, and try to define what that was, it was, you know, probably a number of things. I had been with one company my whole life, not within the same job. The company had changed significantly but I wanted to know that I could start over it for whatever reason, that was just something that there, there was a fire in me. And maybe that's something you can relate to as well. Um, but also our company had undergone very significant leadership changes over the previous couple of years. You know, you and I worked under Richard Petty for many years yeah. under Bob, even my first boss, you know, Bob Stelic, I'd had so many leaders and I think I took for granted really strong leadership um, because honestly, it's all I had known. And, and that is rare. I recognize now that is very, very rare, probably very, very lucky. Um, so when there was this significant leadership shift, you know, the alignment with my values just wasn't there anymore. And it, you know, I had to have a lot of self-dialogue to, to just think, am I being crazy here? Like, would I actually consider walking away from what this is? You know, there were a lot of great perks being a part of that organization. A lot of people that I um, loved working with, um, an environment that, you know, for the most part, with my day-to-day um, employees, you know, they were fantastic. But it became clear that I needed to make a change. And, um, you know, I was in my mid forties at the time. And as a woman in your mid forties, that's a pretty scary proposition. You know, transitioning at, at that time is, is, you know, it's scary and it's risky. You know, there are, there are consequences to doing that. There's, you know, when you take something that you've, you've worked for, you know, you've developed personal connections, you've developed um, professional connections, you know, so walking away from that can be really complicated. Um, But I ultimately decided that's what I needed to do. And I, you know, I just, I leaned into it. And um, it took a lot of explaining, you know, a lot of explaining to my family, a lot of explaining to to my husband, even my kids, um, my social network. But mm-hmm. when I did it, it was so liberating. And I I have to, you know, we talk about feeling like this, this weight being lifted off your shoulders, but it really was at that time. And which told me that that I did the right thing. So I spent, you know, it was about a year. I wanted to take a year. I wanted to spend time with my family. I wanted to walk my kids to school, something I'd never been able to do uh, during, you know, their entire childhood. 
And, um, you know, so I, I was able to able to look after myself physically and sort of re-engage with friendships that um, I, I probably, you know, abandoned for some time, not purposefully, but just by not having enough time. And then I very purposefully kind of went about finding my next job. And I knew by then, just by learning what I didn't like, and sometimes I think having leadership that doesn't align with your values isn't such a terrible thing because it really teaches you what you don't want. And um, and I sort of went looking for what I did want. And I literally, the day I walked into the music accounts office for my interview, I knew when I walked in the door, I was going to work there. I, I just kind of walked in like, yep, this is where I'm going to be. And luckily it worked out. So Amazing. here I am. And, and what is that? So Sorry, before I ask what that role is today, and, and maybe you can introduce the audience who don't know about Music Counts, what, what Music Counts does. You know, I did the same soul searching as you did. I was yeah. lucky though, I, I was not in a position where the leadership changed. Like when I left, Richard was still there, Bob was still there. For me, it was professional development. Like Bob yeah. was awesome. Bob, Bob gave me the BMO Field opportunity. He held my hand all the way through it. You know, and then he sent me out to Oshawa when we were finishing off that contract and then Rico and, and then made me senior director of the Air Canada Center. But at, at a point I was I was capped and, and, and I needed more learning because I wasn't going to go anywhere. I had Bob in the position. I saw people like yourself, Patty Ann Tarleton, like some amazing people like, OK, I, I know where I fall and and where the, the learning opportunity is going to present itself. And that's going to have to be elsewhere because ultimately I didn't want to be the president of the organization. That was that was my goal. I didn't apply to MLSE. I got recruited for consumer products. It wasn't like I grew up saying I want to work in a sports and entertainment company, even though I grew up loving sports. And so I wasn't one of those people that was like, I got to be here forever. Um, because in fairness, in fairness, best job I've ever had, by the way, I like if I could ever become president there, I'd go back in a heartbeat. Like that would be the only thing that would get me out of the consulting gig is, you know, president at MLSE or president for the Habs. And you never know, right? How many are hiring right now at MLSE for a president? I hope they see this podcast with the other 199 people. And yeah. <laughs> but but to your point, you know, you've some people are wired and there's not a right answer or a wrong answer. Some people are wired to look at your situation and go, ah, there's a little bit of a conflict with my values. Even though I've got to trade all this, I've got to pursue that. And you did that. And for me, it was like, even though I'm in a great spot, I got a great boss at that time because it was different leadership. Um, I got to grow. And for some people, that's like, no, wait a second. If I looked in the rearview mirror, I don't think the grass is going to be greener anywhere else. And I'm going to stay in the role I'm in and I'm going to be happy. And that's okay too. And again, I think some of those people are onto something because I love that experience. Having said all of that, you made the jump. It turned out positively for you. Mm -hmm. You're in the new role. I feel the same way about having left. You know, I learned some stuff along the way. And to, to your point, sometimes as I grew, I got this conflict of, ooh, the leadership values aren't what I value. It doesn't mean they're bad. It just means they're different. Absolutely. I don't lead that way. So it's time for me to do something different. Um, yeah. You did all that. You did that journey. Now you're here. What do you do? I know what you do because I've worked with you. But what do you do for the people listening to the podcast today? What's your leadership accountability today? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, a little bit um, uh, yeah, about my role. So I'm the president of Music Counts. And um, Music Counts is a music education charity. And we are associated uh, with the Juno Awards. 
Um, and you had referenced Keras. So um, Keras is the umbrella, which is the Canadian Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. And under Keras is Music Counts, uh, the Juno Awards, and Canada's Music Hall of Fame. So we've got three kind of great uh, music brands under our Keras umbrella. So specifically, my role um, is to ensure that all kids have access to music uh, and music education through their schools and their community. So we achieve that um, in a number of different ways. We have um, granting programs where we provide instruments to uh, schools, to community centers. We've got incredible um, uh uh, resources, education, music education resources, um, where teachers can take some of the work that we've done um, and, you know, uh, teach the students all about the music industry. So a lot of what happens in music education these days is it's a very traditional form of teaching music, but um, kids want so much more than that. So we've got a, a program on, you know, around hip hop. We've got a program on music and mental health. We've got, um, we have a program that teaches high school kids all about the myriad of music opportunities that exist within the music industry outside of performance. So, you know, there's so many incredible things for students to, to learn and to strive for in post-secondary studies. So we're trying to introduce them to that. Um, so that's sort of the, the bulk of what Music Counts is about. I've been there for about five and a half years now. Um, as I said, I feel really fortunate to work in this sort of social profit sector. Um, it does align with my values. You know, as you said before, I loved my time at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. You know, when there was the shift, that's fair. All companies shift. And as you said, it, it wasn't good or bad. It just wasn't working for me. And, um, you know, I feel in this job now, it really allows me to be creative and aspirational. And, you know, you go home at the end of the day. And, and I feel like maybe I've been able to actually have an impact on youth and communities across the country. And, um, that, you know, that's kind of what gets me out of bed in the morning. And I feel, I feel fortunate to be able to do that. It's funny that no matter where you go in your career, you need that sense of fulfillment and having an impact. I, I found regardless of the role, the thing that's given me the itch, I go back to days, it's a 16 year old at McDonald's. It's like, okay, I know how to shake fries now. Like somebody put me on the grill. Like it's, it sounds silly. And then, and that path follows you of always being like, geez, I have to have learned something new so I can be contributing more. And if you stay to that, I think that's what leads people like yourself to grow and impact others is you need that next challenge. You, you need that thing that aligns with you. You need to have that impact. Um, it's so nice to hear you're having that. And, and, and yeah, similar to like on the leadership front, I love that you touched on the point it's knowing what resonates with you. Yeah. And at a time that shifts and it's not aligned anymore. And you've either got to try and create change or you got to go and try and find it somewhere else, but you got to be true to yourself. Like Tim came in and from what I understand, I never worked for Tim. Different leadership style is all I'll say I've heard. And I've met Tim. He was, he was really gracious. I met him at BMO field and Bob introduced me and he had asked me about what it was like opening the stadium in the early days but a, a much more gregarious and to the point type of guy. Um, probably a little less, again, not working for the guy, a little less concerned with people's opinions when he had a vision and he knew where he wanted to go. Yeah. And in fairness to Tim, the team's won under him. But so you can't, can't take that away from the guy. So, nope, but again, to your point, um, and whether it was Tim, someone else, leadership style is important if you're going to be happy at work. 
And, and if you want to stay, you got to be aligned with that. So I appreciate your courage and you sharing all this stuff. Um, but I think it's an important lesson for people to learn because Christy, as you were probably going through that decision-making process, like I did in different stops, is you kind of get stuck. And you're kind of like, oh, do I do it? Do I not? And how do you weigh that? And I think the value you're sharing for people listening to this is, regardless of which path they take, it's nice to know someone else has gone through that. Yeah, that's right. And, and that would make that difficult decision. Yeah. And I think your your gut will tell you if it's time. You know, as, you, as we talked about earlier, work's not always going to be perfect and it's not supposed to be perfect. It's work. Um, but if you get to a point where, you know, you're dragging yourself out of bed every day to get into the office, you know, maybe you have to start listening to, to yeah. your instinct and, and, and know that you can make a change. I mean, I think that's the, the biggest part. I had so many people before I left, I went out for lunch with a few people, people that I truly admired in the company. And they were saying to me, I can't, I would never have the courage to do this. And I'm sort of looking at them thinking, you have the world by the tail. What are you talking about? You know, and so I think a lot of it is just fear, you know, sort of that fear and insecurity that will I be able to, to make that next step? And I think you just have to trust that, of course, you can. And sometimes it takes a long time to get the feeling like you made the right decision. I, I remember my first five years at the printing house after leaving MLSE, like Bob, but just, I had Bob on the, on the podcast and I got emotional at the end. <laughs> I was literally in tears because he's had such a positive impact on my life and my career. Um, and he just does it authentically. I think by being a good person, he, he wouldn't tell you about a servant leadership philosophy and what is pro he just say like, I got to take care of you. Like, you know, I got to show you what I can. So Bob was really good for the first three years. I swear to God, the poor guy, I feel like I was part of his family. Like every month we'd go for a beer and dinner and I'd be like, I think I want back in, or I think I, how do I get back in? And Oh, I'm looking at this job with Pan Am games and I'm looking at, and he would just listen. Like he wouldn't say, yeah, like he would just, but it took me four or five years to feel real comfortable with the decision of leaving that place. And the reason I share that is, that's how tough a decision it is for people when you've been somewhere a long amount of time. So I'm sure there are a bunch of people listening to this podcast going, holy shit, they went through it too. Yeah. What they do with that decision is their decision wherever they're at today, but it's a normal thing to go through and it's a tough call to make. Of course. So much of your identity is, is tied up to your job, but you have to have a network around you supporting you. Um, you know, reinforcing that, yes, you're allowed to make a change. Yes, it's okay to feel vulnerable. Yes, it's okay to feel insecure. Um, those are all natural emotions. But you have to go through them to, like, get to that next great place. Yeah. And I love that you said, you know, you simplified it, but it's true. At some point, you'll know when you have to trust yourself. Yeah. And it takes all of us a different amount of time to get there. Like, when I made my decision to leave, I was happy with my bosses. I was happy but I was like, I'm not learning. I'm getting frustrated. Like, I'm ready for Bob's job. Now, was I? I don't know. <laughs> Just yeah. to be clear, I, I wasn't friggin' ready for BMO Field. I learned that the hard way. It took me a while to get comfortable in that role. But I eventually learned it. But I felt like I was ready. And then eventually it got, it became too much. It was like, okay, I'm not learning. I got to go. And that journey probably took me a year. Um, yeah. yeah. And it probably went as fast as it did because I could see the writing on the wall with, I'm not, no matter how great I do, Bob's not moving up to Richard's chair. At that time, it was pretty clear that Tom was going to be the next guy. 
And yeah. Bob would have told you that. And I don't know if Bob even wanted the chair, um, but I could see the writing on the wall. So make the decision easier for me to go. But again, we'll move on from this. But for anyone out there kind of sitting in a role of, oh, do I stay or do I go? Please know that the process is important and a lot of people go through it. And you can end up positively on the other side, no matter how yeah, long that course. takes. That's right. Um, let me ask you a little more specifically, uh, and thank you for your time. We're doing good. We still got about, I promised you no more than an hour and we probably got about 20 minutes left. Are you okay? Absolutely. Okay. Um, who's influenced your leadership style? If you could, and you can pick more than one, but if you can share a little, at least one person, both personally and professionally, that's mm-hmm. influenced you from a leadership perspective by observing them, who was it and why? Could you share that with us? Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say, as far as professional leadership, um, my boss, uh, when I first started at the Toronto Maple Leafs, was Bob Stelic. Um, Bob is still someone who I consider a great friend, and I couldn't have asked for a better first boss. You know, when you talk about leading authentically, um, that's him someone who leads with kindness, uh, someone who just cared for his team, you know, cared deeply for the people around him. They weren't, it wasn't just, you know, we talk about segmenting our professional from our personal life, but it's all intertwined. And if you're going through a rough time personally, of course, that's going to impact you professionally. And, you know, these are, it's one and the same. And he's someone who um, just, understood that. And um, he was smart. He allowed people to um, take on their own responsibility and he allowed them to run with it and would only intervene if something wasn't going well. Um, He was always quick to praise and quick to support. So, and these were all things before kind of leadership became a thing, you know, it was, it was just all very natural for him. So I feel fortunate to have had him as a first boss because it just laid the groundwork that you can, you can show empathy at work. You can, um, you can be kind. It doesn't have to be competitive. You can strive and have, have goals without trying to cut out, you know, chop out someone's knees of, of someone next to you, we can all succeed together. And he very much fostered that um, within the workplace. I would say um, another leader, and I know it's probably often used when you talk about your parents, but, you know, I really did learn so much from my dad in the way of, of working with people. Um, my dad just has a way to relate to everybody. Um, you know, sometimes to the point where I'll look at them and go, Oh my God, dad, that person is just an asshole. Why, you know, what good are you seeing in them? He could always find good in people. Mm. Um, but he, you know, he taught me to never burn a bridge and I'll use the example with him. You know, I just, I remember him saying it in many different ways throughout my life. You just, you don't, you know, you don't have to burn bridges. If you're ready to move on from something, move on, but you don't have to burn a bridge. And, you know, perfect example for him when he was fired from the Toronto Maple Leafs, probably, like I said before, I think around 1997, he was rehired um, actually as the interim GM and then the GM um, after Brian Burke's era. I don't want to hazard the year because I to guess the year because I just can't remember. But that never would have happened had he left 
the Toronto Maple Leafs and just trash talked. You know, he had an opportunity to go to the media and talk about all the things that transpired around his firing and the things that he wanted to do and couldn't do um, because he was handcuffed at the time by ownership. Like he could have, and, and he didn't. And, and because of that, he ended up back with that organization. So to me, that was just such a full circle moment that, you know, this advice he's given and how valuable it is. So I really try to take that to heart. And again, I try to take to heart that we, you can work with most anyone. You just have to find that common ground. And he was so good at doing that. And, you know, I've tried to learn that from him. And I've had so many good bosses. You know, I said earlier, I've got, those are just a few examples, but I really am lucky, uh, fortunate to have had some, some great bosses and you've named so many of them, you know, Bob Hunter, what a, what a wonderful human being and someone great to work with. John Lashway was one of my first bosses when we, when it was, when we became sort of the MLSE, um, when the Leafs and Raptors merged, just again, what a, what a phenomenal human being, um, so I, I've just, I've been so fortunate. My boss right now, Alan Reed, he is the uh, president of, of Karis. Um, couldn't be a more quality human being. Um, you know, again, empathy, kindness, understanding, um, just all to me, all the attributes of people that I want to, to spend my time with. Awesome. I, I, first of all, I, lo- I love that you shared who you were influenced by both personally and professionally. Um, I love that you're observing. This is what I, this is what I admire about strong leaders like yourself is they can quickly identify the behavior that they align with. Right. And for you, your dad, you're, you're sure your dad was great later, very successful hockey career, like, and, and has won at all the levels and, and, you know, very respected name in that world. But the simplicity in the behavior that you talked about, like his ability to connect with anyone, you know, even at times where you question him doing that, like he finds a way to work with people, he can relate to others. And the lesson you learned about never burning a bridge, those are all behavior-based things that create the result in the career. And you spoke to that about Bob, John, and Alan as well. So um, it's really, and, and again, Bob Stelic from the very beginning, like I didn't hear you talk about leadership process and developing your career and professional. I heard you talk about leading authentically, leading with kindness. He was quick to praise and he empowered. Simple behaviors that it seems leaders tend to forget are what impact other people, which really impact business. Yeah, right? that, we, are, we are productive for people we respect and admire and think have our back. And that's where results come from on the long yeah. term. Yeah. I think it, you know, it just so much comes down to trust. If you, so many of these behaviors create trust. And if you can't trust the people you work with, it will never be successful. Um, you won't be successful personally. And I don't believe the business will be successful if you, in the long run, if you have a team of people who, who just don't trust each other. Short term, you can scream at people and the fear of losing their job will help them generate result, but long term, it won't keep them and they can't continue to produce that result. So let me, let's shift. We've got all these great stories and these great experiences that you've had. Let's, let's talk about one failure. Can you, can you point, and, and I don't mean that to call you out on something that you've done terrible, but what failure have you learned the most from? that's helped you moving forward? Could you identify something where you're like, oh yeah, I screwed that one up and here's how it helped me change or help me improve a process or help me improve a team? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I've probably had more failures than, than I can remember. Um, to me, I think the failures that have the greatest impact are the ones um, that, again, uh, that involve people. And I won't give you one specific example, but it's something that's happened a few times amongst different teams, not being quick enough to make a change in personnel um, when it's clearly been needed. I find um, I my leadership, you know, it is choosing to take care of those around me. Like that's, to me, that's sort of the essence of what leadership is. You are choosing to take care of those around you. And, and because of that, I always think somebody is redeemable or, or this person, you know, if we do this, 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 and this, we can get them on the right path. And nine times out of 10, I actually think you can. Um, But there's always that time when you can't. And for me, it's not knowing that time quickly enough. Or I think I knew it, but I, I fight against it because these are human beings. And, and I want to make sure that I've done everything I can to allow them to be successful in their position before you make that change. Um, What ultimately, though, I think happens is finally, you know, and for me, sometimes it's been too long. And, you know, finally, that change does happen. Most likely, they are better off, you are better off, it is the better scenario. But just getting to that place for me can be challenging. Yeah, well said. I've, I've struggled with that myself. And, and and I think if you look why, talk, I, just, I asked you about the leaders you admire and where they helped you professionally and personally. And there was a common theme, right? It's like giving people empowerment and being able to work with anybody and, and setting people up for success, success and being empathetic. That comes with the risk of holding on too long because that's what you value is like giving everybody a chance and giving them the tools to succeed. And I love that you can identify that because that's an opportunity for improvement as a leader is how do I get better at still valuing that and leading that way, but understanding the impact to the business when I wait too long. It's one of the ones I've struggled with for quite a long time as well. And then to your point, you make the decision, the individual's way happier, your team's way happier and you're way happier, but it's that fear of, am I giving up too early and too soon? Because I think they're a good person and they want to do well. I just have to teach them. Yeah, it's the, it's yeah, the big absolutely. one that that I train on willingness versus knowledge. It's like when is that divide of? It's not a knowledge thing holding them back. It's because they're choosing not to do it. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's the sure. big divide. Um, what would you tell Christy ten years ago? What would you wish you knew ten years ago that you know now that could have had either a bigger impact on your career, people around you? What would that be? I think for me, um, one of the things about being a woman in sports and coming up through the ranks, I think there was a fear in showing emotion. And I appreciate that you talked about about me being steady um, as a leader. And I would like to think I am. I think that's probably one of my strengths. Having said that, sometimes I would not show enough emotion. And I think it's because I built up these walls, you know, when you're trying to sometimes be one of the boys or, or you don't want to be perceived as weak as a woman, 
emotion is often tied to weakness. So I, I think I would tell myself, you can show emotion, you can be authentic, you can, you know, it's not a disadvantage to show emotion. Now, obviously, you have to show it in the right places and in the right ways. But I think I was very scared of showing emotion. And um, that's something I had to learn a little bit later in my career. And that's okay. You know, I did learn it. I feel in my new job, I I, I can take my whole self to work now. And, and it really is, you know, that becomes empowering when you can bring your whole self to work and just the comfort level. You no, know, you can be, you're a better leader because you're being your authentic self. Um, so I, you know, I think that would be my biggest piece of advice that I, I, I can show emotion. I can be my real self. And you mentioned, you know, a subject that had to have been difficult is, is is growing up as an executive and a woman in sports at that time is is and it's still a challenge, but it was even more of a challenge when your career was coming through, right? Um, do you think that counsel that you provide also applies to men about showing more emotion and being open and Absolutely. I think if anything, probably sometimes more to men, um, because there is that's once again that stigma. Of, of being emotional. Um, men are, you know, again, I'm, this is such a narrow definition of men, but in sport, and again, we're narrow um, people, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but, you know, it, at least when I started out within the sports career, it very much valued that alpha male dominant um, personality. So, when you're hired for that, and when you're hired to be that alpha male, showing emotion probably is not an asset. It's right. again a weakness. So 100%, you know that that is advice to men and women. Um, and again, women, I think sport has changed so much from when I started. When you know some of the stories I could never repeat on a podcast. Um, you know, there have been a lot of, <laughs> there have been a lot of, you know, precarious situations. And when I say precarious, not unsafe, I don't mean that at all. Um, but, but, you know, there have been situations where being, um, that I've had to navigate delicately over the years. And I just, you know, for me, again, I consider it a learning experience and, and I don't regret any of it. Um, but it did make me sort of develop these walls and I wanted to be perceived as strong, tough at times when I needed to be, um, and, and unemotional, you know, that is something that I considered, I thought would be considered an asset when I look back now. Yeah. Maybe not so much. Yeah. I think time has made it a little safer to be that way as well. Right. Yeah. You know, that if you give yourself that advice years ago, that would have been right at the time, but I'm not sure the conditions to your point were there for that to be accepted. Yeah. It, just, it sucks, but I, but I think, I think we are progressing slowly. I think so too. And that's why I asked the question about men as well is like, so the, the reason to hide your emotion was completely different for you. It was like, well, I got, I got, I got I gotta, like, I gotta be part of the boys club. Like they, they don't admire that. They don't respect that. So I've got to be firm and I got to be, Right. And, and whereas for men, it's like, oh, my God, if I do that, it's a sign of weakness and yes. can't open up that. And, and, and it's bringing you to the same place, which I believe is the wrong place. Right. Yeah. It's like I yeah. think people want to work with people who they get. Oh, no, they get it. 
like that emotionally means something to them. I mean, you can't go into the boardroom every day crying. That's not going to end up well either. No, um, I, think, I, th- I think your ability to show emotion when when it's authentic and sincere, pe- leaders shouldn't hide from because I think that connects you with your team. I don't think you want to go in and cry because you think everyone will think you're pretty cool because you're crying today. Yeah. Um, but I've had it happen in a couple occasions where I've told the stories. One was at BMO Field. I brought, we're opening that stadium. We're all rookies at opening a stadium. And I rip a strip off of Jody and Vince and Curtis and CJ and Shannon because we we have our daily list and we didn't get anything done. And I tell them, well, you better go and get some sleep and hope we get something done because none of you did anything today. And this is a 14-hour day. And they leave that office and I can tell how much of an asshole they think I am. And I feel a gut, like my gut is like, I'm like what did I they came in the next day and I just, I, I didn't plan to cry. I did. I apologized. And coming out of it, like I'm talking to a few people close, like, how do you feel about that? I'm sorry. Like it just, it's pressures getting to me too. They're like, dude, we'd already run through a wall for you anyways. Yeah. You made us feel like shit, but the fact that you had the courage to show that it hurt you behaving that way, that taught us it was a one-off and we're stronger behind you than we'd ever been before. Um, and I think the pressure made me do that. It wasn't strategy. It was like, I'm, I'm breaking. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm breaking. I, I might as well just be honest. You're a human and you showed vulnerability. And which I kind of goes back to that trust piece, right? right. Now, it's, they're, you are showing your true self. And, and, and that fosters trust. And it's not strategic for me. It was like the pressure got to me. But it did give me a lesson when it happened 12 years later, I know what's happening. It's time to share. And I trust that my team's going to understand, right? Yeah. Did I go in with the plan to have tears as I was doing it? No, but I had to be, guys, I got to be open because I'm showing up differently as a leader and you need to understand why. Yeah. And I share yeah. it openly, right? So I, I love that guidance and advice because I think a lot of us go through that. Yeah. Okay. So I, I asked you who you're, now I'm going to put you on the spot. And if you don't want to answer it, you don't have to, Christy, because I've only got a couple of questions left. But you talked about the leaders you admired personally and professionally. Could you pick the best leader you've ever worked for and why? Jeez. Now, you've called out a lot of people positively. But yeah. is there one you could say like, wow, and here's why? I think maybe one because each brings such a unique um Ah, let me ask you this, Christy, and not to make you uncomfortable, but to help maybe really put you on the spot. Sure. If I told you tomorrow you could pick a boss, and let's let's take, um, do you report to Alan? I do, yeah. So let's take Alan out of it, so Alan's safe, because we all know it would be Alan. But let's take Alan out of it for a moment. That's the host's job. To not put, if I took you backwards from Alan, who would you work for again tomorrow? Who would be the person you'd choose and why? I would work for Bob Stellick tomorrow. Okay, and and yeah. again, for all the reasons you shared earlier about all the reasons, and also um, he is he's always pushing himself to do something more and better, and he doesn't. He's never really taken his foot off the gas pedal. Um, and I so admire that, you know, he, he has his own business now. He's constantly, um, 
any challenges that that are in his way, he seems to readjust his business and and ends up you know thriving. So, and he's and he's so good to his team. And a testament to that is he seems to have had the same team in Stellic Marketing for like he's had very little change in fifteen years or twenty years or however long it's been. And I also look at the number of women he's had who have had kids. They end up back there. You know that's something we haven't really touched on, but that can be a very challenging time for women in their career when they, when they have kids, whether they have one, two, three, whatever it is. And I just, you know, I look at this team that he assembled that is still with him, that he has remained loyal to um, while continuing to grow this great business. So he sort of checks all the boxes for me. Yeah. you. T- we could have a separate podcast on that. Like, jo- and Jody went through it, right? Like I, I know Jody loved working for Steve Marshman at Wasserman. Steve, Got Steve, it. by the way, I don't know if you know, Steve, he's, if your paths have been crossed, he basically started off, you know, at Bell in marketing. I shouldn't say he started off. I could have Steve on this podcast. This proves what type of leader I know him well now. And like, I've never worked for the guy my wife yeah. did, but he then ended up like going into his own consultancy catalyst. He got the RBC Canadian open as one of his first clients. Then he got the CP women's open and then Wasserman came from the States and bought him out but he's still running the business as an executive vice president in Canada. They've brought on a hockey agency, all those. Steve was great. Jody wanted to go back to work for him, but the reality was travel became an issue, right? We're in Guelph because hubby moved and got the job at Fusion, but he was so supportive of her. That's where she wanted, and he wanted her back, but it just didn't work out. And and I know not all women have that experience, right? There's, There's a... There's a, there's a, there's a choice between child and career. And, yeah. and I don't think that's a fair one, but we could have a simple no. podcast. <laughs> no, but the one thing I will say, I think if there are a few silver linings from the pandemic, I'm hoping this might be one of them. I, I think people are now recognizing the ability to work remotely, the ability to, um, conduct some meetings where you would normally travel over zoom far less cost and it will allow women who are young parents to to stay in the workforce um so i you know i hope we start to see that shift i think it's time i recognize one-on-one in-person interaction is always going to be best but there are many situations where you can conduct things virtually. Um, you can work from home. You know, you don't have to see your team every day, all day. You can find ways to, to balance. And, and I think that will help um, maybe with this juggle that women seem to have. Yeah, I think, I think what we're going to find out through this pandemic is that leadership behaviors are going to be more important than ever. Yeah, that's you know, right. I know a guy who wrote a book. Plug, plug. But everything in that book that I've created in this process applies virtually. Yeah. You can have a one-on-one with your team member over Zoom. That's right. You know, you can do professional development strategies over Zoom with your team member. You can do a connection meeting over Zoom. You can even coach during the game over Zoom. You can observe what's going on. So, like, I think leadership's going to be more important ever um, for trust and to create productivity while you flex with hybrid workforce and and helping people through their lives. And the beauty is spotlights on leadership now, because guess what? This generation won't work in a place where they don't get that. That's right. Most people are going to say, sorry, to your point, the pandemic was a reset and and I got to find a job that I love that I can contribute at. 
while enjoying my life. And so it's an interesting time. Let me ask you this. I got two last questions for you. Are you okay for time? I absolutely am. Yeah. I'll be less than five minutes and we would have taken our hour because I started a little late. My apologies. One, what would your parting words of wisdom be for in general, for anybody, whatever industry they are, who is trying to grow their career as a leader? Trying to grow your career as a leader. Um, Well, I guess if we just start with trying to grow your career Mm -hmm. uh, advice, I would say never lose touch with your network. Um, The one thing that I found when I was transitioning um, from one job to an entirely new career, I needed to lean into my network more than I ever had. Um, And, you know, I would say while I was at MLSE and things get busy, you're in one place for a long time. I wasn't leveraging my network as much as I should have been. And I quickly realized that when I was, when I was in this, um, you know, transition and I reached out to so many people, it was so wonderful to reconnect with so many of them. And it's the piece of advice I give, because I was lucky. I had a network to lean into. I might've lost touch with a few people, but we were able to, to quickly reconnect. Um, but that's so important because having that network is that's what's going to allow you to make changes if you wish to. Um, so I, you know, I think that's really important. Um, I would say also, you know, just kind of picking up on the theme of what we were just talking about around, you know, if you are a working mother, if you are thinking of having a family, you, you're not always going to be perfect at everything all at once, you know, you are going to take your foot off the gas pedal in certain areas at certain times. And that's okay. You know, I think for me, I was just um, so caught up in if I wasn't doing everything perfectly, then I was a failure at all of it. You know, I, you know, when you go back, what would I have told myself maybe 18 years ago when I had when I was pregnant with my first child, it's okay not to be perfect at everything all the time. That doesn't mean your failure and everything. You you will have times, there's ebbs and flows. There will be times where this is up here and this might be falling down a little bit. And then that'll change from month to month and that's okay. So, you know, don't let that perfectionism hold you back. Um, as far as, you know, what would I do on a leadership journey? You know, this is something Richard taught us. There are a lot of great books out there. And yes, you're, you have written one of them. Um, thank, you, thank you for the additional plug. No, for sure. And, you know, there, there are some amazing books and even just blogs. Like if you're not sitting down to a book, you know, there are so many great blogs to read. There's so much good information on LinkedIn. Um, and then, you know, just again, that sort of piece of advice, just as much, it sounds so trite and so overused, but the more you can just be yourself. And if you're in a job that isn't allowing you to be yourself, you might want to rethink that because the only way you're going to have longevity is if you can be, you know, who you truly are, your authentic self. Yeah. That is the best advice you can give. One from what I believe will make you successful, successful, but two, to do that temperature gauge on fit and your values. My last decision on one of my last decisions on changing in my career was I was no longer value for being myself. Yeah, yeah, That's okay. 
right? So, you know, for a certain amount of years, the way I did it and who I was worked. And mm-hmm. then there was an ask to change. It just didn't sit well with me. And, and that helped me make that decision. And it's okay for the business to want you to show up differently if they think it's better for the business. You, you are always going to be empowered to make that decision to be yourself. Yeah. I love that advice. So what's next? What's next for Christy? What is next? Well, hopefully we'll get out of this pandemic um, and the music industry will be back on its feet. Um, so I, I see a, a lot to achieve in what I'm currently doing. Um, it's been five and a half years, but a couple of years of that has really been impacted by, by the pandemic, um, which actually, as far as Music Council is concerned, it pushed us in another direction. So it's been it's been really exciting and very stimulating, but I feel like there's so much more work to be done. So I'm excited to dig into that. Um, I, I, you know, only see amazing opportunity. You know, will I take on another role after this? I don't know. You know, I always figured I would within three to five years. Um, and now that I'm sort of doing this, I can't imagine being anywhere else because I'm just enjoying it so much. Um, and I still have so much to learn about the music industry. You know, as much as my roles within music education, what we do is really, really helping build the foundation for the future music industry. And, you know, I'm able, I work with so many, um, so many incredible people, so many incredible artists. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine not working in this industry now. So whatever it is, I hope it's, you know, it stays within music. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was great. It was was great to reconnect with you too, to, to get you to share your story with, uh, you know, the listeners of the podcast, which is kind of cool. So if you'll please say hi to Jim for me. I will. Please say hi to Jody. And I'm not like super active on social media, but I see, you know, the, all your house decorating and all that (laughs) stuff. It's amazing. She's done all of that. And, and, I don't know your father, but tell him I forgive him now for 89. I've let it go. So I think that's it. You know, it. he started with the Habs, right? You know that. I didn't that. want to get into this because you had mentioned this in the past. Did he Did he work with Scotty Bowman? He did, yeah. And oh, then he and Scotty were both fired from the Canadians and went to the St. Louis Blues. My gosh. Like, because the Habs didn't do very much under Scotty Bowman at all. So I get that. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I think they had, like, made it to the... No, sorry. They didn't get fired from Montreal. They got fired from St. Louis together. So Scotty went to St. Louis and then brought my dad. Oh, okay. And then as the assistant GM, and then they made it to the, I think, semifinals two years in a row. And then they both got fired. I don't know. I guess the new owners were expecting they would win the cup every year. Because when you think so, about Montreal, those those were the heydays. Like the Scotty yeah. Bowling years were like, I remember... Yeah kid I was he's the first coach I remember as a little guy I was like you gotta remember I was blessed is it so people ask me about working at MLSE and then I swear because we'll talk hockey forever but I remember at ML and people my friends were like how you how do you how's it like working for the Leafs right because that's how MLSE was kind of known within my my network of friends who are Habs fans and being a Habs fan I said I gotta tell you as much as listen even to this day when the Habs are playing the Leafs it's no question yeah (laughs) it's a great joy in last year's collapse. Having said that. You and Brendan, I yeah, recall. It's yeah. true. Having said that, they quickly became my second favorite team. And I'll tell you why. And this is sincere. That fan base 
yeah. is ridiculously loyal to that team. And yeah. how could you not want that? Like, because I grew up as a kid, as a young kid, watching them win. Remember, I, I was born in 72. And yep. 72 to 80, now granted, I wouldn't remember 73, 74, but as a little guy, a three-year, I saw it all the time. And then we won in 86, we lost in 89, we won in 93, even as a teacher. Yeah, I kept going. I know what that feeling's like. Yeah. I haven't felt it in a really long time. And it was good to feel it last year, even though we didn't win. But where I go back yeah, to that is was exciting, though. that fan base. Like, I know. Well, Jim, you always talk about. So Jim was born in 67. The okay. last time the Leafs won was the year he was born. And he's hey, literally Jim. been What's a, up, Mark? a fan right. And yeah. they've never won. And how does any team not make the playoffs for, what, eight years? Will's, Will was born in 2004. He's never seen them get past the first My round. son was born oh. in 2004. They've never made it past the first round. I can tell you as a Habs fan, this will be the, they're gonna they're gonna do it this year. I don't know if they're gonna win, but they're gonna go deep. They gotta get past the first round player. Anyways, Christy, this was awesome. Thank you. I love that Jim was able to pop in and say hi too. I'm keeping this on the podcast. I hope you're okay with this. I'm not cutting it out. Oh, okay. He's keeping you on the podcast. Jim's in. I'm sure he's fine with it. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, what's that? We got to recruit you to come play in our Withrow Park Ball Hockey League. You're are you not retired now, are you? Uh, I'm, well, I'm living in Wasega, so if I was going to play anywhere, it wasn't going to be back in Oakville with the Halton Leafs. So I'm up, I'm open game. I'm a free agent. All right, I'm in. If you need if you need an eighth defenseman on a seven defenseman team, I'm your guy. <laughs> hey, listen, we're all eighth defensemen or ninth forwards now. Yeah, I tell you, Jim, when at those world championships, no one opened the bench doors faster than I did. Hey, but you were there, though. I was in uniform. I got a medal. I was there. That's amazing. My question is, how did Malk survive so long? When when I coached him at U of T, we couldn't – he smoked and drank his way through university hockey. <laughs> I tell you, he – at the Worlds in Bermuda, he was the best player on the rink. Oh, and, and he just – and he was the best player on our team. Like the kid could score like there was no other, but he could never finish the fitness test ever. Who was that? Ian Malcolm. Oh, Ian Malcolm. God, that's right. <laughs> we used to have a four mile run and it was, we were always guessing between he and Scott, his brother. Yeah. Scott went out first. It's funny because Scotty played ball hockey with us too. And I can validate that that's still the case many years <laughs> later. <laughs> Great guys though. We love them to death. Good dudes. Awesome. Well, Christy, thank you so much. And thank I, uh, you, Mark. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I think you shared a lot of value. So I hope everybody gets a lot out of this one too. So thanks for doing it. And I hope we can connect in person soon, have a beer and we can all catch that up. That would be great. Yeah, if we're up in Wasaga, I will let you know. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, say hi to Jody. I will do. Bye. Bye.